You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 1st of February 2023 on Monocle 24. Reinstalled Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu resumes his characteristically undiplomatic diplomacy. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi oversees his government's last pre-election budget. And how long would your career survive the broadcast of any internal company meeting? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests, Daniela Peled and Somnath Batabayal, will discuss all the day's big stories and we'll have the latest from Washington, D.C. on America's ongoing classified document saga. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I am joined today by Daniela Pellet, Managing Editor for the Institute for War and Peace Reporting, and by Somnath Batabayo, Lecturer in Media and Development and International Journalism at SOAS. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Uh, Daniela, first of all, and I hope our listeners are sitting down for this with a firm grip on their hats, you're going to Birmingham. I am. I'm continuing my journeying around the, the hot spots and exciting, most exciting places of the, the British Isles. The thing is, Birmingham, it, it, we should explain to our regular international listeners, Birmingham does get quite, I think, unfairly traduced within Britain quite frequently. I have always found it delightful myself. But you have a particular interest in weirdo local history. What are you hoping to see? I really do. I hear exciting news of a coffin museum. Outstanding. Yes, a lace museum. And I think there might be something to do with bricks as well. Like a brick museum, a lace museum, that, and a coffin museum. That, that is a day out, isn't it? That's the dream. That's the dream. That, that's, sort of, that's almost literally the path from cradle to grave, <laughs> chronicled in three museums. Uh, Birmingham, it really does have it all. We are not, I should make it clear, in receipt of any sponsorship cash from the city of Birmingham, though always open to offers. Um, Somnath, as regular listeners will also be aware, you, you are on the verge of becoming a, a superstar of international uh, television screen writing um you have been yeah (laughs) thank you yeah you you have been watching your series being filmed in india yes i was there in um, last month uh, and through december Uh, the shooting is continuing i think will carry on till march but i'll give you an interesting anecdote please um september i went to india and took my son and my wife to india gate in delhi uh, hoping my son should see the great Mm -hmm. grandeur of what the english built um and uh, we were rudely stopped by a policeman uh, with the self-loading rifle and pushed out of the way, and my son was terrified. This time when I went back, the shooting was on Parliament Square. The entire place was cordoned off. <laughs> you know, and we had policemen in attendance saluting us, so I felt really good for us. I, I was really hoping you were going to say you found the exact same <laughs> I police wish. officer. I, uh, that, my son that, asked, did you find him? <laughs> uh, that, that would have been amazing. Um, j- just uh, finally on this, do you know yet when it will be on screens and which screens it will be on? The shooting ends on in, in the, by the end of March, six months of post-production, November, and it'll be on Sony and Z television. Okay. You do, we were just discussing before, 
hand have an almost embarrassing number of other exciting projects on the go, which we will discuss at future junctures yes. in the light introductory banter slot. Uh, we will come back to you both very shortly, but first of all, to the United States, from where we are joined by Monocle's Washington D correspondent, Washington DC correspondent, in fact, Chris Chermack, who appears to be among a decreasing number of Americans who don't have box loads of classified documents stashed in their attics. Um, Chris, what is happening now? How are we in a point where more of President Joe Biden's properties have been searched than have former President Donald Trump's? <laughs> well, it, it is pretty incredible, isn't it, how, how this has been sort of trickling out. Uh, what we have today is a search of Joe Biden's Rehoboth, Delaware Beach House. Um, this is a place that um, his people had said, the White House had said they had not found classified documents before when they had searched it themselves, but the FBI is now taking another look. This is not uh, sort of forced. This is in cooperation, at least from what they say, with with Joe Biden and the White House. Um, Joe Biden's sort of counsel uh, announced this move, although it, it first came about because various reporters who had staked out the Rehoboth Beach House just noticed a few black marks vans pulling up to the house first. Um, and I mean, yeah, you know, what can you say about these things? I mean, Joe Biden has three locations that are now, that have now been searched. His, uh, the Penn Biden Center in Washington, D.C., his Delaware residence um, as well, another residence in Wilmington, and now the Rehoboth Beach House. So, so yes, it's just... I mean, if you want to be charitable about it, it is, uh, you know, taking a very thorough look just to make sure that there are no outstanding documents. We don't know if the FBI actually expects to find anything from this search, but they're being extremely thorough about it to see what they can what they can find. Do we know, going back to where the Biden variant of this saga started, why it occurred to anybody to start searching his properties in the first place? Well, you know, I think I think part of this does relate to Donald Trump, of course, as well, and the Mar-a-Lago searches. Um, th this is, in some ways, about Joe Biden and the White House being thorough. You you also know, of course, that uh, vi former Vice President Mike Pence has also revealed that he has found classified documents at his home in Indiana, and that also came about because he realized, well, if others are finding classified documents, then maybe I might have something of my own as well. I had better check. So it, it is sort of this, this trickling of, of revelations about documents that are that are coming out, I think, just and just really shining a light on this this issue in general, this problem, as you said, of so many people apparently not entirely following uh, the rules or or not even being aware of the fact that they have documents in their possession that are classified. Uh, and just finally, Chris, am I right in assuming that coverage of this search by conservative media has been rigorously even-handed and completely lacking in any hypocrisy? Of course, completely even-handed, as you suggest there, Andrew. I mean, one of the interesting ways you could look at it is, uh, you know, Democrats, when they talk about this, are kind of lumping Mike Pence and Joe Biden together, pointing out the fact that they are you know, cooperating with authorities that they were upfront about this, uh, about the documents that they found and contrasting that with Donald Trump, who had to have Mar-a-Lago searched 
with a search warrant by the FBI because they believed he was withholding information potentially obstructing justice. Republicans, on the other hand, of course, are lumping all three together and saying, oh, well, this just shows that you know, there is a problem with classified documents in the United States and also continuing to promise further investigations of Joe Biden specifically and his role in it. What I will, though, say, Andrew, that's interesting is there's a couple of things that Democrats and Republicans agree on when it comes to this. One is that senators, particularly Congress, are frustrated that they have not seen any of the documents involved here. They don't know whether what kind of level of threat to national security Joe Biden, Donald Trump, or Mike Pence's documents pose, and they have pushed the Justice Department to release information on that, and that has been refused. And the other thing that they agree on is that the system has to change. Perhaps too many documents are classified around the United States, around Washington, and that's this is something that has to be looked into. The fact that you now have both sides, kind of uh, Republicans and Democrats being exposed, does give you some hope that there will be an agreement there between the two on you know how to go about this in the future. Chris Chermack, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle 24, and let's bring in our panel, Daniela and Somnath, and look at Benjamin Netanyahu settling into the diplomatic obligations of his third go-round as Prime Minister of Israel. Amid a spike in violence between Israel and its Palestinian neighbours, Netanyahu has recently conferred with US Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, who intoned the traditional unctions about de-escalation, and Netanyahu will later this week fly to Paris to meet French President Emmanuel Macron. Rather disappointingly, bookmakers do not appear to be offering odds on which man is looking forward to this least. Benjamin Netanyahu and Anthony Blinken spoke at a joint press conference yesterday. Blinken particularly spoke about Washington's desire for a two-state solution. As I said to the Prime Minister, anything that moves us away from that vision is, in our judgment, detrimental to Israel's long-term security and its long-term identity as a Jewish and democratic state. That's why we're urging uh, all sides uh, now to take urgent steps to restore calm, to de-escalate. Um, we want to make sure that there's an environment in which uh, we can, I hope, at some point create the conditions where we can start to restore a sense of security for Israelis and Palestinians alike, which, of course, is sorely lacking. Uh, Daniela, first of all, that was uh, fairly phoned in the usual stuff from Anthony Blinken there. But the, the two-state solution, first of all, is that seriously a thing that serious people still discuss seriously? I mean, I, I would compare it to the, the tooth fairy or Father Christmas, maybe, <laughs> except probably vastly more people believe in the tooth fairy and Father Christmas. Now, it's it's depressing in a way that people are paying lip services and, and you know people in such high office are paying lip service to this there isn't any there isn't a formula that has been found uh, to replace it um but um really the the major standout from that speech was de-escalation that's mm. really all that the americans and probably emmanuel macron as well uh, can focus on and beseech the israelis to to, to try and implement 
Uh, we will come back to Macron shortly, who, as you correctly point out, has also been uh, doing the de-escalation tango. Um, but first of all, Netanyahu also gave an interview to CNN uh, in which, and this may have been ingenuous, I mean, Benjamin Netanyahu ingenuous, it's just about possible. But he said in his view, peace with the Palestinians will follow an end to the wider Arab-Israeli conflict, not the other way around, as has traditionally been assumed. And obviously Netanyahu there was uh, attempting to remind everybody of his great diplomatic triumph, the Abraham Accords, and, you know, linking Israel diplomatically to a few Arab countries which previously had not. Might he have half a point there, or is he is at least is he hoping that once the Palestinians do realise that the rest of the Arab world has now completely lost interest in this, that they might they might come to terms? Well, I think it's uh, painfully aware to the Palestinians that you know the Arab world and the entire world, um, apart from quite often hipsters in in Brooklyn or, or Hackney, have slightly forgotten about their cause, or or even more that the Palestinian cause has become a kind of fetish. You know, it's very little to do with actual people with hopes and, and dreams for a sovereign um, state, but it's become, become a, a meta symbol of, mm. of, of a symbol. And uh, clearly, as you said, Netanyahu has got skin in the game because he has this, these Abraham uh, Accords. You know, for, for, for decades, the received wisdom was that uh, Israel, if it didn't make peace with the Palestinians, would become a, a pariah state internationally. And also that was key to making um, peace with the rest of um, the Arab world. I mean, there's, I imagine, a huge amount of glee in Israeli diplomatic circles um, that this is not the case, really. It's it's the reverse. Um, Non-democratic states in, in the Middle East and in the Gulf are quite happy to make um, peace deals um, with Israel. Um, been quite beneficial uh, for both sides. But I think we really also should stop talking about this, engaging with this concept of peace with the Palestinians. That's mm. not something that Netanyahu is interested in. Netanyahu is really quite to the left of his uh, current government. Um, so that's a cheerful thought. Well, yeah, I mean, these, <laughs> this is it. I mean, these are the facts that I think we need to, to, to face, and which is why it's extra depressing to hear Anthony Blinken talk about the two-state solution. You know, we kind of feel we need to move on from this. But um, the other options, people are talking about, you know, one-state solution is anathema to the Israelis or even very many different iterations of confederacy and, and so on and so forth. None of the international actors are taking a step saying, OK, this didn't work. It's not going to work. Let's stop pretending. Uh, Somnath, uh, to move on from Daniela's uh bracing observation that relative to the government he leads, Benjamin Netanyahu is currently something of a, a left-wing peacenik. Um, l- let's look at what he might be bringing to Paris where he meets Emmanuel Macron. It's safe to assume that they will probably be talking about Iran more than they're talking about Palestine. Do we get the impression that, that France and Israel are broadly on the same page where Iran is concerned? Yes, very much so. <clears throat> I think you knew the answer. Um, I think um, from the, I mean, France and Israel have a long uh, tradition and a history of uh, cooperation in military operations. And given the situation in Ukraine and mm. Israel's uh, recent bombing in um, Isfahan, uh, Iran will crop up quite uh, seriously on the agenda. But there are a few other things also. I was kind of uh, when I was. Uh, 
reading uh, of recent, the last few years of the developments, uh, France had proposed in 2016 a multinational conference on the conflict, you know, uh, which, mm. of course, be immediately rejected. I was wondering if anything new might come up, if they might even suggest something new. Uh, Daniela would... Well, I, I mean, I think it's just, this is quite in the sort of Macron playbook, actually. He likes to see himself as this, like, muscular... Exactly. Sorry, muscular French man. That doesn't, doesn't come across <coughs> right. But this sort Please of... all address all complaints to Daniela Pellet, yes, not Monocle24 that, as a corporate right. entity. Some of our best friends are French. That's right. That's right. But, you know, he is the foreign policy dude, right? Mm. He's, he's acting on the international stage. He's having uh, meetings with world leaders. I mean, I struggle to think which one of these events actually led to sort of um i was i was just going to say i was thinking i was thinking instantly there of his, his grandiose descent upon lebanon a matter of hours after the beirut port blast which did not appear to result in anything terribly much well the, you know there are plenty of examples of it it plays well at home i guess and this is his um this is his image and and uh, i'm all for european leaders taking a a greater interest um in the wider diplomatic scene um when it comes to iran i mean I would be quite alarmed if if, if um, other European countries saw really eye to eye with Netanyahu because that's this has been his focus since before it was fashionable and he would be really he you know he's not much of a soft power guy shall we no. say staunchly opposed to the the peace deal um, and Paris's attitude now is sort of more in sorrow than in anger saying well actually we don't see it being revi- revived right now but I think. France would be supportive if that was um, a possibility, whereas Netanyahu would be supportive probably of quite direct action um, rather than peace deal, which, you know, you you could make criticisms of it, but to me it seemed quite clear that it was the the best option in a tricky situation. Uh, On on the subject of direct action, and just finally on this, Daniela, um, Somnath alluded to it, this apparent drone strike on an Iranian facility of some sort in Isfahan. Um, Is there any meaningful doubt about who was behind that? Well, there wasn't. And, and, you know, the Americans have made it quite clear that it was the Israelis. And the Israelis usually report um, these stories with reference to foreign sources. Uh, it's quite clear. And it's again, it's one of those um, one of those actions that why do it if no one knows that it's you doing it? Mm. Because it's super daring. You know, the, the drones would have had to be launched from within Iran, which is a pretty impressive feat. Uh, it shows how, uh, how um, extensive Mossad's um, reaches. So I don't think there's any doubt at what exactly they were attacking is less clear, but it does seem to be some sort of advanced missile technology. Okay, well, let's take a look now at India, which is maybe a year away from its next general election. Not at all coincidentally, India's latest budget in the grand political tradition of bribing voters with their own money is long on tax cuts and infrastructure spending, among other such blandishments. Among headline announcements by Finance Minister Nimala Sitharaman, the equivalent of 24 billion US dollars for railways and enough money to build 50 new airports and or heliports and a thumping increase on spending on on affordable housing, although in India, as elsewhere, affordable is rather in the eye of the beholder. Um, Somnath, as they look ahead to the election, Modi and the BJP have a handy uh, majority in the Lok Sabha, especially as not one other single party is anywhere near them uh, in terms of seats they command. Are, are they any... Are they? I'll see if I'll try that question with the words the right way around. Are they in any danger at all of losing this election? Uh, no. 
<laughs> Unfortunately. So, so you, you wouldn't counsel planning to get some people around, get some cans in and stay up all night watching the results come in? I think I'll give that a skip. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I mean, the confidence that um, the party has, uh, the BJP, and, and for the coming elections shows in the budget. Mm. I mean, while you spoke about infrastructure, um, there is a... And inf- infrastructure spending has gone up by a massive 33%. Def- defense budget has been hiked by 30%. But welfare has mm. been cut by 30%. That, to me, was quite incredible because it targets the largest uh, vo- uh, no, vote bank of the BJP and about 400 to 500 million people, right? So that has been massively cut. So they know almost that they can do this and get away with it. It most just generally the trend has been that before general elections, the party in power gives massive major sops to uh, in uh, in sorry in welfare cuts. Mm-hmm. This has not been the case. So it, to me, it shows that the BJP knows that um, they can cut deficit and they're using it to cut deficit. Just to follow that up, are they proceeding on the assumption that those people who will be on the receiving end of those welfare cuts will just vote for the BJP anyway? I think they have a solid vote bank there, and um, the promise of Modi, the image of Modi, gets them through through difficult uh, situations. So this is probably the gamble they have taken, and they they plan to cut the India's fiscal deficit by 05 uh, that is the pl- that is the plan that's showing. Uh, I'm also very intrigued by the budget high, uh, the defense budget, which has been hiked by thirty percent, because there is a conversation now, very serious one between the U.S. and India mm-hmm. on collaboration, and also with Australia, uh, and um, their strategic moves trying to counter China. So that's very much embedded in the budget, and um, India and U.S. are having very close conversations on defence deals. Well, yeah, there, there has been this new US-India agreement on defence, space and tech. And I just was wondering about that, Somnath. If you see here, uh, Modi, who, whatever else uh, you might say about him and whatever else indeed we have said about him on this programme, uh, did not get where he is by not knowing how to play politics. Does he sense some sort of opportunity uh, in India's current close relationship militarily with Russia um, and the prospect that he might back away from it. There's leverage here for him, isn't there? I mean, obviously, India is massively beholden to Russia. India is Russia's largest purchaser of arms. Uh, But if Modi is sort of, you know, fluttering his eyelashes at the Americans and saying, you know, we're open for business, make us an offer, this is not a bad time to be doing it. And playing the China card, Mm. because they know that the US will have to uh, kind of bolster India's defences, if they're to counter the Russia, uh, the China threat, I mean he's playing both camps very well. Mm. But the, but here it here is the you know I was in India for about a month and a half, meeting loads of people, journalists, policymakers. The conversation around Russia and Ukraine in India sounds so different than when I'm sitting here in the West. The it's a very simple conversation. So U.S. has gone around the world rampaging all over the place. The U.K. has done it, France has done it, and then suddenly when Russia does it, you're saying take our side. So it's a very different conversation mm. they have. So it doesn't matter to the Indian voters, Modi's position on Russia. In fact, they welcome it. So for vote bank politics, that position is very fine. Uh, international politics, it's a different line. Moral politics, we can talk mm. about it. But at the moment, this budget seems to say that Modi is able to play both sides very well.
Uh, Daniela, Somnath alluded to it, and it is something that US President Joe Biden uh, has been enthusing about in between wondering what else he might have filed in whichever other attic. Uh, This is the idea of resurrecting the Quad, which was this sort of informal arrangement involving the United States, India, Japan and Australia. You can see the appeal of that to the Americans, this sort of bulwark of Indo-Pacific democracies. Is is that likely to be something that could be important, or are those just two, four, no, four hilariously different countries? Well, it, what works is if you have a common enemy uh, or a common security threat. There is nothing like that to, you know, to to um, to bring people together. Um, the question is, how useful would that be currently to his major security issues? You know, the, the rest of the world is, you know, is clearly sees it in a different. Um, a, a different matter, but Ukraine now is um, Ukraine now is sucking all the the air out of the conversation and the defence uh, conversation. With planning forward, looking at the threats from China, maybe and threats from uh, security threats in the Middle East. But right now, uh, Ukraine is the focus, and I don't, I'm not sure that there's that much um, uh, space to strategize on, you know, building these wider and perhaps slight, un- slightly unlikely. Uh, uh, alliances. Uh, Somnath, just a final thought on this, because we will be returning uh, ad infinitum to the subject of India's election, uh, even if it is, as you seem to suggest, something of a foregone conclusion. Um, what other things? I will hope you... I'm wrong. <laughs> what, what other things, though, will you be looking out for? What What other significant developments uh, lie between here and polling day? So Rahul Gandhi has finished his six month. You know, a Bharat Jodo Yatra, which is, you know, bring people together. Um, another thing which has happened and got academics and uh, policymakers talking is the huge, huge success of a film called Pathan by Shah Rukh Khan, which just came out last week, which is of a Muslim man, um, a patriot uh, in the uh, services. I don't know the entire plot line, falling in love with an ISI agent and saving <laughs> India. But the conversation was, again, India was once upon a time a kind of... You know, um, we're religion. We were allowed to in the seventies, eighties, not be really bothered about religion. Mm. Who's religion? So this, the masses again getting around an iconic Muslim superstar who wears his Muslimness on his sleeve, um, though his name is like Raj or you know, a kind of a Hindu name. So, how does that play out in the national imaginary? I might be making too much of mm. a big thing, but Bollywood has been on a low for the last five or six years. This has been a massive super hit. It has re-energized Bollywood, the industry, and entirely the, uh, the, the box office takings. And it is about, again, about a Muslim superstar playing a Muslim, um, fighting for his country, and not all Pakistanis are bad. So this is very... It's complete anathema to the BJP. This is a a more nuanced view of these things than the BJP generally projects. I wouldn't say Shah Rukh Khan is nuanced, but in (laughs) in this current political climate... So, so there is no credible opposition we know. Um, Rahul Gandhi's um, triumphs have been very few. The opposition is divided. 
But who knows? We live in hope. (laughs) Well, let's now move along to possibly the worst idea in the history of journalism, a title for which the competition is exacting. Chris Licht, the reasonably recently installed CEO of CNN, has confessed in an interview with the Los Angeles Times that among other reforms, he once floated the idea of putting the morning editorial conference on the air. Mr Licht further explained that, quote, I was talked out of it for a variety of reasons. He did not specify precisely which adjective was inserted in between are you out of your and mind um daniela uh, on a scale of one to career-ending calamity for all involved how bad an idea would this have been well i really want to be sort of counterintuitive and, and <laughs> come up with the ideas why it's uh, not such a bad idea which i can think of maybe one or two obviously oh, go on. well obviously outweighed by the you know the ridiculousness of the idea and i would like to c- continue promoting this idea that journalistic meetings editorial meetings are these sort of tough sexy uh, sweary events with cigarette smoke drifting through you know across the typewriters uh, mostly a bit more boring and dull and sort of people spilling their coffee um than that a bit of swearing maybe but um i can see the reasons for it which is you know to try and bolster perhaps diminishing confidence in in mm-hmm. journalism uh, and that's quite creditable uh, it's a terrible terrible idea though and that wouldn't work it really wouldn't work um and also there are all kinds of, of reasons you know for confidentiality as well you look at the kind of meetings i have the areas that we work work in would be it would just be impossible to work if there was public scrutiny of our conversations with and about um journalists for simple safety and security reasons um but also in in terms of uh creative thinking and an exchange of ideas there's ways uh of making journalism more transparent i don't say to journalists in in training what you should do is you should be prepared to show your working Mm. show how you got this story show how you show how you access the sources Uh, and i think we can put greater um emphasis into building that that public trust because you know just live streaming an editorial meeting is not actually gonna uh, show you how journalism is made no and, and i i for one think monocle 24's listeners would be shocked by how many of our meetings devolve into quite often anguished uh, debates over which country makes the best crisps uh, or or equivalent the the, 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 the the biscuit discourse uh, does recur quite frequently as well. The answer to both is obviously Australia. Um, Somnath, the other other problem with this, or one of the other problems with this, is that if you turn a camera on a meeting and broadcast it, then it's not really a meeting anymore, is it? Because everybody is conscious of the fact that everything I am saying is being relayed to an audience I cannot see and cannot justify myself to. True. I mean, See, I, I, I have two different takes in it. I've been a journalist for 10 years. I've been an academic studying journalism for the last 10 years. Um, So for one year, I sat in a newsroom in um, Murdoch's newsrooms in India, Mm. and I recorded every morning meeting and um, for a year, and then I had to listen to them. They were pretty bland (laughs) and boring. Uh, That is one. But having said it, I have one of my basic questions to journalists were, what is news? Most journalists couldn't answer that. Uh, It is through listening to the processes that I could get some sense of how news is constructed. Um, you know, I repeated, what do you think the audience wants to see? How the audience is imagined? Um, so why something will work, why it won't work? Now I know this will never happen, but a redacted idea of how a day gets constructed in a newsroom 
might not be such a bad idea to put out that these are the reasons these made headlines mm. and 10,000 other stories didn't. This goes back to the 1950s. You know, there was a book by Manning White, if I remember. A Texas news editor at night sat down and wrote down reasons for every story he didn't take in. And this became the mm. first sociological study on the newsroom processes. So it's not a, I mean, it's an outlandish idea to have it live. But some way of showing audiences this is how news is constructed is not probably outlandish. Because, Daniela, it, it goes back to what you were saying about transparency <laughs> and making it clear to people how these things get done. And I think maybe uh, there's a case there that that would hopefully push back against some of the conspirazoid thinking that goes on about news institutions with their agendas, etc. And it's it's an incredibly trivial example, but I always think back, or I was thinking about this when I was researching this bit, if I think back a million years ago uh, to when I worked at Melody Maker, the uh, much lamented British Rock Weekly. It, it was it was a, a common trope of the letters we would receive from our angrier correspondents that we we deliberately built acts up just to knock them down, almost as if we had the trajectory charted uh, on the wall somewhere in the office um, for Swade or Pulp or whoever we decided were going to be big and and we will destroy them in September. Um, would that we were that organised. It it was far more typical. Uh, the meeting I remember attending quite early on which basically devolved into a huge row between the senior staff about how on earth the soup dragons had ended up on the cover, which was a reasonable thing to be angry about. But the people having the argument were the people who at some level must have made the decision. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, when it comes to conspiracy theories, haters are going to hate, and it's very mm. hard to de uh, debunk, especially with facts. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. But I do find that people, you know, when you tell them that you're a journalist, they kind of make a noise that they go, hmm, hmm, hmm. It's kind of, uh, they're simul simultaneously, they might be a bit impressed, or they're a bit suspicious. Oh, they're definitely not impressed. Uh, so, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's before we actually have a proper conversation. But they, there is a sort of, um, especially in Britain as well, especially mm. you know our our relationship to the to, to journalism as well. There's an awful lot of, of suspicion. Um, there's this idea, oh, you make the the news up often, which happens surprisingly little, I think, um, especially in the way in the wake of the the spare uh, book by Prince Harry. You know, the idea that that it's all tabloid journalism, and that's what journalism mm. is. But also that there's some kind of shadowy conspiracy. And that's a place where it, it links up with other kinds of uh, conspiracy theories like anti-Semitism, like um, uh, the Illuminati. I mean, choose, Those your, guys. choose your conspiracy <laughs> theory. Journalism, for some reason, is often at the heart of it because I think people think that we have this immense power, which somewhat infantilizes the, the, the public. We have this immense power to, to direct the course of events. If only. Um, exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> well, finally on today's show, yet further reason to envy the commuters of Tokyo. Their trains, long proverbial for being clean, comfortable, reliable and punctual, are now also quiet. The free Wi-Fi provided to local trains ahead of the recent Olympics is being removed as a cost-cutting exercise, although operators have also noted that the take-up was quite small anyway. While this falls short of the obvious common-sense policy, i.e. equipping and licensing specialist squads of transport police to taser people playing audio on their phones with no headphones it's a start um somnath where are you on this would you would you lament the absence do you lament the absence of wi-fi from your commute 
I live in Islington. I didn't even get it at home. So, you know, I mean, <laughs> this is London. Uh, uh, no, I wouldn't. I mean, uh, black spots are, I, I'm told, uh, for people in countries which are well-connected, like Finland or Scandinavia countries, um, they, they love black spots. But in London, I wouldn't know. Um, a bit of peace and quiet before mm. going into office might be a good idea. Um, but for others, they want to be connected all the time. I mean, if the facility is there, people will use it. And, and you know, uh, again, coming from India, loudness, and uh, loudspeakers, <laughs> no headphones, music, big play, you know, uh, conversations in uh, cinema halls. It's all part of every day. Is it good, though, Daniela, to actually have somewhere at this point where we're not online? I, I recently flew to Australia and back and for the first time was actually on a plane which had reliable and free Wi-Fi, which I did take advantage long enough to to send a couple of emails to people going, woohoo, I'm sending an email from a plane. Uh, but then but then realised I was quite annoyed by this because one of the very few things I had used to like about long-haul flying was that just no one can bother me here. I, I confess that's something that I also enjoy about all flying, even if it's just for a, a couple of hours, you know, that, that sort of enforced... Um, that enforced quiet. But I would suggest that your support of this Wi-Fi, um, lack of Wi-Fi, has, is a bit sort of more to do with the sort of grumpy old madness, yes. maybe? Luddite. Ah. Both of those things. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean I'm wrong. Because, Somnath, I would, also, I would also argue, and I may not have thought this all the way through, this was just something I came up with. If you think about, since the advent of the mobile phone, uh, which you now see people gawping into on the train as they go to and from work. The countless millions of hours of people like reading actual books, newspapers and magazines that have not been done because instead people have been playing Candy Crush. I know, my father used to talk about television this way and right. my grandmother about radio. So, you know... But has, do you not think that that has been at some level a general detriment? Andrew, all that reading, I mean, I, I all wish. that reading and thinking that has not been done. As an academic, I'm not allowed to make general statements, but, but I, I do take the sentiment. Yes, I tell my son not to get off the phone once in a while. Yes. Andrew, I don't want to blow your mind here, but people also do read books and newspapers on mobile telephones. Really? Yeah, they also, but they never used to play Candy Crush on their newspaper. They used to do the crossword, and oh, it's not quite the same. It's, yeah, not, it's, it's, no, it's, it's not. It's, same. it's, it's not quite no, the same. But Andrew, I mean, on, um, I, I take your point. I completely agree with you, and uh, there should be times during the day no one should have any internet connection and just to come back to my original brilliant reform for you know improving everybody's lives uh, people those people who play audio out loud on the train should they be merely tasered or actually thrown from moving carriages or one and then the other i think electric cattle prod is a, is a compromise okay yeah i'm a reasonable man I, I, I can, i'll I can, stay mum on that I, I can go with an amount of cattle prodding uh, <laughs> that is all for this edition of the monocle daily thanks to our panelists today daniela pellet and somnath batterbile also to chris chermack at the top of the show the show was produced by lillian fawcett and researched by Andre Nikolai Pamanchuan. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.